What a joy it is to be the bride of Christ together, representing him now in his church. And I'm especially glad to be back with you after a few weeks of uh, travel and ministry. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13 as we begin the second half of our study in the Gospel of John. John 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 today in our study. And as you turn there, I just want to say a special thank you to Pastor Mitch Butel for serving in my place last week. So many of the things that he preached correspond well with where we are in the book of John today. John 13, we'll be studying verses 1 through 17, and I know it's familiar to many of you who have grown up in church, but I'm going to do things a tad different today by only reading the first verse, which kind of sets the tone for the passage, and then we'll continue our reading of the text throughout the sermon itself. It's a narrative, it's a story, and I'd like for it to unfold as such as we work our way through. John 13, I'll begin with verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think few of you in this room who even know me well know the exact Uh, denominational tradition that I grew up in. I I don't mention it very much because it would be confusing for some, but I think today it's about time I told you. (laughs) The name of the group, it's a little-known group, mainly in North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, is called a Free Will Baptist. Now, I've been somewhat disowned by the group because I don't believe the same things that um, they believe. But one of the things that they were especially proud of was the FWB acronym of their name. They liked the free will part, and we've talked about that at different times here. But there was another way that they would fill in the blanks for FWB. Feet washing Baptists. They loved the fact that They thought that they were practicing all the ordinances of Christ, not just two of them. An ordinance is anything that Christ commands, correct? He ordained it, and so Christ ordained that we drink uh, the, the juice and break the bread in commemoration of Him. Christ commanded that people be baptized, and they would look to John 13 and say, well, Christ commanded that people wash feet. And in light of that, I would go to wager here, I wouldn't put much money on it, but maybe a little bit. That I have probably washed more feet than anyone else in this room. (laughs) And little cute babies don't count. I'm talking adult men feet. People wonder, like, what what was that like? Well, we only did it four times a year. So so we do communion four times a year. We didn't want to wear it out. And then we would do uh, the feet washing after that. So you would, you would go, uh, do your communion thing, and then the men and women split up, and they have 
uh, just rows of chairs facing one another, like in a fellowship hall or a Sunday school class. And there's these big white bowls, uh, and they're filled with water, and everybody sits down, and, you know, I mean, <laughs> you can kind of angle, like, who you want to sit, you know, with. I mean, that dude has, you know, the toenail fungus, and that guy, you know, he kind of smells funny. So, you, you know, you, you position yourself in, in the best spot, and then everybody takes off their shoes and their socks, and somebody's got to start. They, you stick your foot in the water, and the other guy, like, rubs the water on your foot. It's not too graphic, you know, there's no soap involved. But then you put in the other foot, and then at, you're wearing a towel, and th- you wipe that dude's feet off, and then you give the towel to him. He puts on the towel. You do the same thing back. And they sometimes sing hymns. It's actually, uh, it's actually a very endearing moment. Uh, but the problem with the, the feet-washing ceremony that I saw in those churches, and it's not just that denomination that does it, is that it, it's so easy for it to be like all show and no go. Like, it's a lot simpler to say, I'm glad I got my four feet washings in this year, than it is to, on an everyday, ordinary, and regular basis, actually put yourself in this servile position to everyone else around you. In this classic feet washing text, that's exactly what's being called for. But all those who would follow Jesus are expected to don the towel, to wear the towel, to, to get on their, their hands and knees and do the most menial work for those around them. And that is a problem for the typical American church. We live in a consumer age where even now, church is treated like some type of market. You shop around, you read reviews, you find the one that you're looking for that will meet your needs. Um, and, and churches play into it. They say that the, the person is the consumer, and we have to figure out like, how to reach the market, and so we try to present ourselves in certain ways. And what this has done in most people's minds is actually like, denigrated the importance of committed one another service, like Jesus commands right here in John 13. In fact, there's research to back this up. George Barna, he's like, the pollster of evangelicalism. He loves to poll people who claim to be Christians. Claim to be Christians. I just want to emphasize that. And so he asked uh, several thousand people who claimed uh, to be Bible-believing Christians uh, what they thought of something like the church. And it was pretty interesting. 49% of them said uh, it's, it's very important or kind of important. 51% said it's not important at all or not that important. So let me just simplify the stats. About half the people who claim to be Christians say church isn't a big deal. Like this, what we're doing, church isn't a big deal. When he asked them why, this was the answer for the majority of them. I don't get much out of it personally. I don't get much out of it personally. Well, if it's a consumer thing, right? Well, of course, you, if you're going to get and you don't get what you're looking for, why is it important? But the question before us, in light of this text, is our relationship with one another a means of getting or is it a means of giving? Is it about consumption or contribution? You should read the text carefully to find out. 
It'll blow your mind. It blew their minds. I, it is hard for me to over to overproject, to overstate how shocking this would have been for them. There's been a major shift in the book of John. 1 through 12 has been Jesus' public ministry to the crowds. And we saw at Christmas and the Sunday before that Jesus closed that ministry up. There were a bunch of people who said, nope, we don't believe. Jesus said, fine then, I'm not going to let you believe. And it, it seems like a miserable failure. He was hoping to reach the masses, and all he has is just a few uh, disciples who are gathered around him. But Jesus is not deterred at all. He takes the 12 that are left. He brings them into this special place where he will now, in chapters 14 through 17, begin to give some of the most focused teaching for all true followers of Jesus in all the Bible. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It begins with our text today. And the way that this thing opens is just stunning. I want to help you see it as we read, because like, there's some things going on here uh, grammatically. They kind of underlay the, the English text that I'd like to unfold for us a little bit. So let's continue reading together. Don't worry, I'll tell you what the sermon's about in a second. But let's just read a little bit uh, of the text here. Look at verse 2, and I want you to notice a lot of uh, participles. We don't have any main verbs. We just have a lot of participles, a lot of setup. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. The text is going to continue, but I want you to note that everything from verse 1 to verse 3 it's just like introductory, like participial, you know, like the tone, the time, uh, some background information. Like in our English text, we have periods, and it makes it look like, you know, there's multiple sentences here. But in Greek, this is all one long sentence, and we haven't even got to the main idea yet. It's just a bunch of background information. But you need to see it because he's setting up something. It's kind of like, when you see Star Wars, and it, it starts off with that, you know, screen with the, um, the stuff you have to read, and I always have a hard time reading it, and I think I have pretty good eyesight. Like, there's a backstory before the story gets started. Uh, this is the scrolling backstory before you get into the first act of the upper discourse, upper room discourse. And, and there's some interesting things here. We know that there's some t interesting timing going here. Notice this, it says, during supper. Whatever's about to take place happened during the supper, not before the supper. Now, typically, uh, what would happen when you would go to a formal meal in an ancient Near Eastern context like this, they're doing Passover, like you would have immediately walked in, and because of just the dust that would have accrued on your feet, uh, the host would have arranged for someone to wash your feet at the door, and of course, like the rest of the world, except for America, you take your shoes off before going inside. Like, they want clean feet. But what's fascinating here is they've already gotten into supper, and nobody took the time to wash the feet. I guess there was no servant available, and the rest of them were like, I'm not doing that. And so they just said, okay, well, we're going to eat supper with dirty feet. 
kind of a shocking thing. And so Jesus actually gets up during the supper and says, okay, I'm going to do it. Luke 22 actually shows us that during this time they were arguing about who was the greatest, ironically. But John doesn't mention that. So the timing, that's some interesting background. It's not a galaxy long ago, far, far away. This is, this is in a meal at Passover, not before the supper, but during the supper, Jesus does what he's about to do. That's shocking. Here's another thing that's shocking. Notice who's there. It says, during the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, one of the people's feet that he will wash will be none other than the one who will betray him. He's going to show this sacrificial service even to the one who despised him the most in his company. And then there's this amazing introduction of Jesus. Verse 3. Like, here's the setup. You've got to think of who is about to do the action that's about to take place here. Jesus, the one that had everything given to him from the Father, the one who had all authority in heaven and earth entrusted to him, like the most important individual on the planet, the one who came from God, the one who would go back to God. We're not just talking about a Galilean carpenter from somewhere around Nazareth. You know, like that'd be one way to introduce Jesus. Here, Jesus is introduced as the most significant individual in the universe. And there's your backstory. And what's going to take place in verses 4 and 5 grammatically is fascinating because here in the original language is a bunch of main verbs. No participles, verbs. Verbs carry the action. And what I want you to note, because again, our English text chops it up, is that John is, is slowing down this event so that we can contemplate step by step what Jesus is about to do. Have you ever... Have you ever read uh, maybe like a, a scary story, like a campfire story, and you know that the action begins to slow down like step by step, like the, and she heard that the steps coming down the hallway, and she saw the turn of the door handle, and she heard the creak of the door on the hinges. And she could feel the beating of her heart. You know, like, as you slow down and give, like, a, another verb and another verb, and it, it just makes the action really graphic. Notice what's happening here. Verse 4. Jesus rose from the supper. You're like, oh, well, that's interesting. He laid aside his outer garments. You're like, whoa, what's going on here? And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And people who were from this culture are like, no, no, that's not going to happen. Then he poured water into a basin. They're like, no, no. The most important person in the universe is not going to do this, surely. And then it happens. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We're not from an honor culture. Like, we don't get it. We're Americans and we just think we're all equal. 
We have a hard time, dis- I mean, we have a hard time respecting authorities, being in awe of anyone. I just think of the casual nature with which even Christians will denigrate an office like the president, legislation, the way we disregard the police. Some people are better at this than others, but it's typically an American thing to say, hey, we're all equal, we're all the same. Not so, friends, in this context. It's an honor culture. Uh, Significant individuals are significant for a reason. In fact, in many cultures, even still today, I talked to Joseph Darwin, our brother from India who is now in seminary in Los Angeles. He says that even in India today, when you meet someone who's older than you, you bend over and you touch their feet. It's a sign that they're they're greater, that they've got more to offer. For, For these Jews sitting around this table, for the most significant individual in the universe to slowly get up, take off his outer clothes, wrap himself with a towel, get out a basin of water, and begin going down the line, washing the filth and excrement off the feet of those disciples would have been a shocking event. And the thing that we should be asking ourselves right at the beginning of this is, uh, okay, we're starting the upper room discourse. Jesus is about to teach his disciples everything they need to know to serve one another in his absence. Why in the world would he do something so denigrating? Why would he humiliate himself to this degree? Why would he interrupt this supper? Like you totally get, we get like the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. Why in the world did he have to wash their feet? Couldn't they just let it go? That's what this text is about. Why would Jesus display such sacrificial service? The text provides us with two purposes for that. Two purposes for Jesus' sacrificial service. I'll tell you up front. Cleansing and copying. Jesus would demonstrate this kind of sacrificial service for our cleansing and for our copying. Notice the cleansing. The story continues because Jesus begins this feet-washing escapade, and it's clear that he's making his way around the room from man to man, and it says in verse 6, look there, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's emphatic in the original. Lord, do you, you yourself, wash my feet? Jesus answered him, this is important, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, keep this in mind. Jesus knows that what he's doing is not about the actual washing of feet. He's washing feet, indeed, but he's doing it as what I would call an enacted parable. You know what a parable is, right? Like Jesus would tell a story, but it wasn't about the story. It was about something significant behind the story. What you have here is an act of service, but it's not about the service. It's about something behind the service. And that's why he says like, hey, you want, you, you don't, you're not going to understand what I'm doing now, but when the thing happens that is about to happen happens, you're really going to understand what I'm doing now. Does that make sense? It didn't make sense to him at the time, but all of us who know what happens like five or six chapters from now are like, oh yeah, I know where this is going. But let's be a little merciful to Peter in objecting to this because truly in true ancient Near Eastern form, this should not have happened. 
And so he objects to it. And so Jesus tells him, hey, I want you to be on the lookout that what I'm doing here is actually not what I'm doing here. It's, it's a picture of something that's about to happen. You need to be on the lookout for it. It's an enacted parable. And so, though Peter objects in, in question, he then just comes right out and says in verse 8, despite Jesus' comment that he doesn't understand what he's doing, you shall never wash my feet. Again, cool, underlying, grammatical things. Um, I, could, I could literally render this. You shall never, ever, ever wash my feet. There's, there's two words for no here. It's the strongest negation in the Greek language. I will not cuss, but it is like the American equivalent of saying, heck no. It's that shocking. Heck no, you're, you're not going to wash my feet. And then he adds the word ever forever. You will never, ever do this. Peter's determined that, that this is not going to happen, that this should not happen, and yet Jesus answers him, notice this, if I do not wash you, notice he doesn't say his feet. Now he's talking about the bigger thing, the point of the parable. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You know what the word share means? It's the same word that you would use to talk about an inheritance, that which you would get with an inheritance. You see that in our culture? The patriarch of the family dies, and then all of a sudden, everybody's interested in their share. Same word. Jesus is saying, if I don't wash you, you won't have any share with me. You will not receive the benefits of my ministry here. Like the pardon the big word, the eschatological inheritance, the end-time inheritance that I have prepared for you, you will have no part in this at all if I don't wash you. It's a big deal. He says, you've got to have it, whatever it is that this act points to. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter still doesn't know what's going on, but he's like, okay, well, if I've got to have it, I'll take it all, you know. Let's not just do the feet. Let's just go for the whole thing. So he goes from one extreme to the other. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And uh, I'm going to do some southernisms here. And y'all are clean, but not every one of y'all. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of y'all are clean. Literal there. I'm not kidding. It's there. He starts talking about the group. And what's he trying to tell them? Peter, what I'm about to do in humiliating myself and laying down all of my rights is going to be totally for the point of making y'all clean. Not all of you, but the ones who actually come to me. You'll be clean. And that will make it possible for you to participate in the inheritance that I am offering to you. It's about cleansing. Jesus' sacrificial service is about making us clean before God. That's what he's trying to convey. He was like, you have got to have this. And you know what the great implication here is, friends? That we're dirty. We are dirty before God. And we cannot clean ourselves. 
In the prayer time today, I was grateful that uh, Rob Clark uh, saw it fit to pray for uh, staff pastors, and he specifically mentioned uh, our home, because we're in the process of doing um, a remodel, which included uh, taking up tile floors. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It is a disgusting process, um, especially when you're in the, the middle of it. Because you, you not only, it's not like the tile just comes up in neat little pieces. You know, there's this grout underneath it. And whatever dude, I hope he's not here, remodeled that house, like put five times the amount of grout underneath the tile that was actually needed. So it was nothing but like chiseling away uh, this stuff with the equivalent of a jackhammer for multiple days. Several people have helped. It's been, it's been amazing. So yesterday, though, things got really interesting because... Uh, we rented uh, an industrial grinder, and if you've never seen one of these, it's this really heavy thing that's got a diamond blade on the bottom of it, and it just like tears to pieces everything that's there. But what happens as a byproduct of that is the dust is so finely ground that it floats in the air like a thick fog. And what you're supposed to do if you have a house that's wired properly is to hook up a vacuum cleaner to the thing so that it sucks up the dust and it doesn't get everywhere. Well, my house isn't wired properly, and therefore, every time I turn the vacuum cleaner on and the industrial grinder on, the circuit would trip. So we had to grind the entire thing in this little 1,600-square-foot house with the industrial strength grinder and nowhere for that stuff to go but up and in your mouth and up your nose and in your eyes and in your hair and in your pores there are a few times in my life that I've been more dirty than yesterday. Uh, one person even reported, I think, that I looked like an albino. <laughs> it's a terrible feeling. You know the feeling, that just to feel dirty, whether it be the tearing up of floors, or whether it be the planting of a new garden, or whether it be an extended workout in the heat. We know what it's like just to feel disgusting. We know that in body. And when we're honest, we know that in soul. We know what it's like to have because of the depth of a particular sin or because of its breadth, how often we do it, just to feel downright dirty before God, like, oh, I'm just gross. Shakespeare wrote about this in uh, Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth and her husband plot the assassination of King Duncan, and she even assures herself before this particular sin, a little water clears us of this deed. The blood was literally on their hands, so she washes her hands off and thinks that she's going to be good, and yet she begins to, as the play continues, she goes crazy. She wakes up in the middle of the night, and for like 15 minutes at a time, just washes her hand, yelling out, out, damned spot! She can't get rid of the blood that's on her hands. It, it's not a stain of body. It's a stain of soul. It's something that we all know, like inherently, whether or death or breath. And I don't care what kind of sin it is, but there are some more than others that tend to just worm their way into our soul, and we think, this ain't coming out. And what Jesus says is, no, 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 you don't get it. That's why I came. 
I came to make you clean, and I came to do it at great cost to myself. We read the passage earlier from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where it says that Jesus descended from heaven. He took on humanity to live truly in our place, and it even says that he took on the form of a servant. Where do you think Paul got that language from? It has to be Jesus taking off his outer robe, his symbol of status, putting on a towel, and then getting on his knees and washing these guys' feet. But notice, friends, he did more than that. It was an enacted parable. There was something beyond this. He didn't just wash their feet. He cleansed them of their sin. Philippians 2 goes on to say that he not only took on the form of a servant, but it says he became obedient. Not just obedient, but obedient even to the point of death. And not just death, but even death on a cross. He suffered in our place. He took our shame, our filth, our disgustingness. I made that up, yes. On himself. So that we would be clean. Friends, that's the promise of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. You remember in Isaiah chapter 1 where Isaiah tells the people, because they were feeling this dirtiness of soul as well, he says, hey, though your sins be like crimson, they shall be white as snow. And what is it that you see in the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 7? There's this great scene where there's all these people who are standing around the throne and they're wearing these really white robes and they're singing praise to the Lamb who was slain on their behalf. And what What is John's explanation of why they're wearing such white clothes, why they're so pure, why they're so clean? He says, these are the ones who have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. Total cleansing promised. And what made that happen? None other than the sacrificial service of Jesus on the cross. Why would he do such a disgusting thing? I mean, you thought feet washing was bad. Let's get past the parable and to the point. Why would he hang naked on a tree, enduring the wrath of God for sins that he himself did not commit? Why in the world would anybody ever do anything like that? Because he wanted to make us clean. That's the point. That's the purpose. He came to make us clean. And friends, we have to have that Otherwise, we will have no part with him. There are some of you in here today who think that you're morally upstanding enough or that you've undergone enough religious ritual of some kind or another that you don't really have to go all in on that. On that alone. I I say this especially for those of you who grew up in religious traditions that emphasize sacraments. Because I I want you to get here that even Judas himself partook of the sacrament, if you will. He partook of this special act that Jesus would extend to him, and yet he still missed out on the cleansing. There's nothing that we can do to get ourselves clean. It is something that Christ has done for us, and he has totally completed it through his work on the cross. Salvation by grace, through faith, alone, not salvation by grace through faith plus whatever else the church has said that we need to do to get clean. It's Jesus alone. 
He came for cleansing. But that's not the only reason he came (laughs) to do this sacrificial service. It's also for copying. Look at verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, so that activity ended, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you all understand what I've done to you? You all call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, notice how he switched it there, have washed your feet, you all also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant or a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Just pause there for a moment. It's pretty simple argumentation here. If you want to get all fancy, you know, you like to identify these things. It's called an a fortiori argument. From the greater to the lesser. Jesus is saying, you need to copy me, here's why. Because I'm me, and I'm important, and you're you, and you're not as important. And if the important person did it, how much more so should the unimportant people do it? We see this line of logic uh, in several different uh, examples. You know, in our own day, I think I could say it to my kids. If, if I, as a, as a grown man, have to wear a seatbelt to keep myself safe on the street, how much more so do you, as a child, without the same muscle mass and bone structure, you need to wear a seatbelt to keep yourself safe on the street? I mean, it's just greater or lesser. What Jesus is saying here is, if I, who was just introduced as the most significant individual in the universe, get down and sacrificially wash your feet, how much more so should you guys be doing the same with one another? It's really not that hard to follow. In fact, the word that he uses here, example, is the same word that we would use with like little kids. You know, like you remember as a kid and you're learning to draw and somebody like lightly sketches something out for you and they kind of leave some spaces and then you kind of fill in the spaces. Like Jesus is saying, not that you're going to fill in the spaces because that would imply that you make it better. He's actually saying that it's the other way around. I've given you the full picture and you're going to copy it. Maybe you've seen at times uh, people in certain places of our world obsessed with art who were trying to recreate the painting of a master. Jesus is that master painting, if you will, and we're the ones with our separate canvases like trying to actually display that through our own lives. He says, hey, I have shown you greatness by sacrificially serving you by fighting for your highest eternal good. Now it's your turn to do the same with one another. And let's just hit the obvious. Certainly, we can't provide that kind of cleansing for one another. (laughs) You can't die to accomplish the cleansing of another individual's, but you can lay your life on the line to see them clean in Jesus. And that's what he says. He says, I've done this, and I intend for you to do this for one another. Friends, this is so plain to see, it's painful to think about. It's plain to see, it's painful to think about, because now all of us are kind of left in this weird spot this morning. I mean, truly, every person in the room is like, hmm, 
All right, feet washing, that's disgusting, don't want to do that. Uh, dying on the cross, uh, that's kind of out of the question, that's disgusting and uncomfortable, I don't want to do that. Um, but I need to do something like that, therefore, what in the world is this supposed to look like? And you start thinking about it, and you're like, what do I, do I wash people's cars? <laughs> do I babysit? Do I cut people's grass? Do I help them out on their home renovation? <laughs> what, is, what does it look like? I think there is a, a simple principle here that you see that transfers to us, that it is um, consistent, intentional, and proactive pursuit of another's ultimate good. Consistent, intentional, proactive pursuit of another's ultimate good. Jesus laid out his life for the ultimate good of those who were gathered around him. We lay down our lives for the ultimate good of those around us. What is the ultimate good of others around us? It is their satisfaction in God himself. It is their enjoyment of him through his word we're looking out for one another physically for sure that like that's part of it but maybe that does include physically washing things from time to time but it's actually a concern uh, for the spiritual well-being of the other people around us like, this is where this is headed he'll make it more clear in even the verses to come but like we should be of this posture where we're more concerned about other people's souls think about that than our own that's so different than the American concept discussed earlier. Why did you pick the particular church that you did? Because it benefited you. How many of us picked a church on the basis of that which we could provide benefit? It's an important thing to consider. So it's plain to see. It's painful to think about. But here's what will blow your mind. It's pleasurable to do. Like, I know, I, I'm American too. Like, I'm listening and I'm like, oh, this sounds like such a drag. I, I do not want to make church about other people. I like church being about me. I did not like having to park where I did today. I don't like being crowded around all these people around me today. Like, I'd rather have a little bit of space, a little bit of breathing room. I'd rather the sermon be a little shorter. I'd rather sing a little music that I like. I have a different style than this. I don't like the way that people are dressed. It's a little too stodgy. I mean, like you could always be saying that kind of, I mean, it sounds unpleasurable, but here's the crazy thing. Jesus says, it's actually the key to joy and happiness. I mean, just look at it in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are y'all if y'all do them. Notice that. He's assuming that you know them, but he doesn't say, if you know these things, you'll be happy. He says, if you know these things, blessed, happy, prospered by God are you if you do them. The key is just getting to work. The key is just grabbing a towel, getting down on your knees, and washing some feet. That is the path to happiness that Jesus provides for his followers. You will find your greatest joy not in pursuing your well-being, but the well-being of others. That's what he's saying. It's so countercultural. This is true greatness in his eyes. 
The staff and I were talking earlier this week about um, some Bible college experiences that we had. Interestingly, all three of the pastoral staff have gone to a Bible college of some kind, which is a, a four-year school focused on trying to prepare people for like vocational ministry, but they can have other degrees as well. Um, the Bible college I went to and the Bible college that the guys, the guys were familiar with that shut down in Wisconsin uh, did a similar practice. I didn't even know this. But when I graduated uh, from Southeastern Free Will Baptist Bible College, uh, we, you, know, you go and you get your diploma, and you're wearing the hat, you're wearing the regalia, all that. You get your awards. Everybody claps for you. They say your name. And before you step down, uh, they give you a towel. The symbol was clear. We've equipped you to serve. It's kind of funny because I was thinking about it. Like, we give people here when they get baptized um, a t shirt. <laughs> I'm like, let them wear their own t shirt. I think we need to give a towel. When you guys like join the church here, you come to Life at Faith Lunch in, in a few minutes, uh, we're going to give you a book. I'm serious. Like, I think we should be given towels. I would love for somebody to ask, like, what in the world is this? I've got plenty of towels. Say, <laughs> so welcome to the family. We serve one another here. Jesus intended for his people to be the people of the towel. And I want to warn you of something. Just four quick little considerations for those of you who would don the towel. I think this would be an applicable way for us to close. Consideration one, sacrificial service flows from Christ. Sacrificial service flows from Christ. Don't miss how this thing's going down, folks. I am not setting up some moralistic message trying to add more to your spiritual to-do list at the beginning of a new year. What I am saying is that when you are stunned by the grace of God shown to you in Christ, you want to display that to others. That is the point of the text. It is not just about the example that he offers. It is about the exercise of his laying down his life for us. Don't misunderstand me. It could be the difference between heaven and hell. If you walk out of here today thinking, you know what, I just need to be serving people a little more. I need to be a little more selfless so I can get into God's good graces. You will miss it. You will not be clean unless he alone cleanses you. But having been cleansed by him, knowing that it all came from him, you want to demonstrate that and convey that to others. And so, friends, what's the key for us to have this type of sacrificial service amongst one another as a church family? It is not good old-fashioned grit making it happen. It is more and more appreciation for the gospel through the ordinary, humdrum, unsexy means of grace. We continue to look at what Christ has done for us in His Word. We continue to appeal to Him in prayer for more understanding of what He's done and meeting the needs of others. And we continue to gather together as a church, not just worried about our own needs, but for the needs of other people. We need to see Jesus clearly so that we can show Him clearly. It comes from Christ. Don't forget that. 
Another reminder. It flows from Christ, and the sacrificial service shows at home. It shows at home. I, I say this because it would be really easy, it's so easy, uh, for you to walk out of here today and be like, oh, I'm just going to get like really involved. Um, I'm sensing a sign. <laughs> okay. Whoever that was, we will not embarrass you further. It would be really easy to walk out of here today and say, you know what, I need to sign up for something at church. I need to be wearing a name tag around here, and that's really going to fix it. You know, that's no different than us washing one another's feet literally four times a year and thinking we got our free pass. Truly, if you're going to like lay yourself out there for the good of other people that you don't know, you got to start with the people that you do know. I was reading this book uh, a few weeks ago. It was a great statement. It was talking about our tendency to try to do all these big, huge things that people like to applaud, but not do the small things that, that people you know, don't seem to see or appreciate. And they made a good point. It's a lot easier to, to dig wells in Africa than to wash the dishes at home. Man, you dig wells in Africa, you get some serious Instagram credit. But take the same picture at home and nobody's comment. I use that as a parable because, like, truly, we all know what it's like. Well, not all, but some of us could know the tendency to just busy ourselves with any and everything going on outside the walls of our own home. And yet, I say this to men especially, your own wife may need your humble service first. Your own children may need your humble service first. It would just make sense that it shows at home. If this is who you are, why would you show it to those outside your family before those inside? So just keep it in mind. It flows from Christ. It shows at home. It goes to church. The sacrificial service actually goes to church. And I don't mean by that it shows up in the building. What I want you to understand is that the emphasis of this text and everything to follow in the upper room discourse is that Jesus intends for there to be a very special ministry that we have, not just to all people everywhere generally, but one that first and foremost begins with the family of God. When he's saying, do this for one another, he's not saying, sacrificially serve everybody on the planet. He's got a place for that. But there is a special love that should be exhibited within the realm of the Christian community first, just like I was saying with the physical family. How hypocritical is it if your family's, you know, a burning mess and you're just outside doing all types of amazing things in the community? And how much different is it if our church is a blazing mess, but we're involved with all kinds of things outside us in the community? There is a place for stuff in the community. Don't worry, I'll get to it. But he is saying that this first and foremost has to do with one another. You'll see it again in just a few verses when he says, love one another as I have loved you. There's a special command. And that's why our church, at least this church, for those of you who are visiting today, for people who are participating in communion on a regular basis here, and it seems that they're identified with our church, we eventually ask them to say, hey, would you just clarify your relationship with the church uh, by seeing if you agree with this, this, this covenant? And some people don't like the word covenant because they think it's really strong. We just mean by that a relational agreement with one another. We have obligations to one another here. We're going to take seriously Jesus' command to love one another and serve one another well. 
It, it goes to church. It, it begins here with us. And so in that, I say that once we make this commitment with one another to love one another, well, now we've got to convey it in, in ways that are appropriate. And this is where I want to be careful because it would be easy for me to like make it sound like, oh man, we must be down on volunteers in the nursery, and so now he's going to lean in on everybody needing to make themselves more busy. <laughs> well, we are down on volunteers, but that's not why I'm saying that. <laughs> Uh, I forgot what it's called. I don't know the principle, like the name of it, but you've heard it before. Uh, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, typically in any organization. I rejoice, friends, in Jesus, but that's not true here. This is not a 2080 church. It's probably more like 60% of the people doing the work, maybe 80. I don't know. It's, it's just a great place to be. Just yesterday, I was reflecting on this this morning, just yesterday. We had a work day here. People were like killing themselves, trying to get rid of these invasive trees on the side of the property. I had people help me out at my house because it's in shambles right now. Uh, I heard that somebody, another group of people were helping out another guy at his house who's in shambles. You know, like it's just a normal thing. We just, like service here is just such a thing. And I'm only like pointing it out just to say that some of you, like may feel kind of on the outside of things, and this is no trick, I promise it's not, it's not a trick, this is truth. The secret way in is just forget about, you know, meeting your needs and start meeting the needs of others. Look, I, I was a youth pastor for five years. I think I know a little bit about like activities and groups and that kind of thing. You know what the, the, the best youth activities we'd have? Raking, I'm not kidding, Raking the leaves of the widows. You know what the worst youth activities I'd ever do? For multiple reasons. A lock-in. And you're like, yeah, lock-in stink for everybody. Okay, well, and a theme park. Soon as I take all the kids to the theme park or say we're going to lock in, the mindset switches where it's just like, oh, this is about me. This is about my entertainment. Soon as I tell everybody, we're going to go rake the leaves of so-and-so, they're like, oh, this isn't about me. And they would have the best stinking time. Friends, some of you are coming to church treating it like it's a lock-in or it's a theme park. Like, I can't wait to see what I'm going to get from this experience. And you are miserable. You go from church to church to church to church, and you keep looking for this secret community that's going to somehow let you in. And the truth is, you're only thinking about yourself. When you just give up on that and say, you know what? I'm going to make a contribution. I want to help other people. Then you find yourself on the inside of things. You know the word community comes from the word common? You know what makes a community? People have something in common greater than themselves. In this case, it's Jesus. And you're like, you know what? I don't care what part I play here as long as Jesus looks good through it. And so for some people, that will be physical expressions and acts of service. For some people, that will be deep spiritual conversations. For some people, it's just showing up and praying. And I would say, friends, that all of us have great opportunity here. It's going well. But if you find yourself on the outside and you're like, hey, I, I'm kind of missing out. I need some help. I preached this a few weeks ago. That's what elders and pastors are for, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You don't think you know where you fit? You don't think you know how you could contribute? Well, let's have that talk. But this is your great privilege 
Sacrificial service for Jesus flows from Christ, it shows at home, it goes to church, and then finally it grows through the world. I could hear the objections rising from some, like, man, if we spend all this time serving one another, what about the community? What about the lost? What about the nations? Listen, friends, you can't give away what you don't have. You just can't give away what you don't have. The light that shines farthest burns brightest at home. Jesus says that good works, good works are the platform. They adorn the gospel. They make it attractive. Yes, we need to consistently, intentionally, and proactively serve one another. But as we do that, we're setting up opportunities to consistently, intentionally, and proactively advance the gospel around the world. And that is how it works. We do both, indeed, but we can't neglect first things first. And so Jesus has exemplified this for us, and he has exhorted us, invited us into the same. And so I'd like to close with a simple prayer that I first heard as a song uh, when I was a child. I was reminded of it. I haven't thought of this particular song in probably literally 20 years. Last week, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'm driving down the, this, this road that I'm not all that familiar with, and all of a sudden, I see this, this little dumpy building with a sign out front that says, um, Majesty Music, home of Patch the Pirate. Now, some of you are chuckling because like, you know who Patch the Pirate is. Uh, this was this, this guy who like, lost his eye somehow, some way. And anyway, he became like this Christian singer, and he started a children's program, uh, and they taught kids like, how to memorize Bible verses. Like, this is what I grew up on. And I'm like, wow, Patch the Pirate, he lives there. <laughs> <laughs> but his, some of his music is, is so good, and, and one uh, taught to children, but I think should be good for us all is an appropriate way for us to end. It's called, Give Me, Lord, a Servant's Heart. I'll just read you these lines, and then I'll pray. Make me a servant like you, dear Lord, living for others each day. Humble and meek, helping the weak, loving in all that I say. Give me, Lord, a servant's heart. Here's my life. Take every part. Give me, Lord, a servant's heart. Help me draw so close to you that your love comes shining through. Give me, Lord, a servant's heart. Give us, Lord, a servant's heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, through your Spirit, you've shown us Jesus again today clearly. You've shown him as the sacrificial servant. And there are some in this room right now who need to receive him as such alone. They need to run to him in desperation, in faith, for the cleansing that only he can provide. Do that in the hearts of some who are sitting here even today. And for those who know that grace, I pray they show it in concrete ways to one another. 
For those who are already doing that, encourage them in that. For those who are looking for opportunity to do it more or better, guide them, equip them. Or continue to to honor yourself as Christ is on display here through this body. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.